Today's scripture comes from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who, were want, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister." You may be seated. Thank you. As you're seated, let me pray for us. Father, we're grateful that we can gather together today in the name of Jesus. We are grateful for your presence here and the power of your spirit. We ask you that you would help us to take this text, to learn from it, to grow and be transformed by it, and that by the transforming power of the gospel, we would be people who glorify you in every area of our lives. We pray this today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you were uh, to sit down and have a coffee with me and you were to say, kind of, give me some, give me an overview of why you do everything you do around Christ City. If we're just sitting down, having a cup of coffee, and we're talking about why we preach the way we preach every week, what our whole team is aiming at as we run different ministries and courses and stuff that's going on midweek, today's message is what I would have to share with you. We're just sitting down having a cup of coffee. I would want you to know that, that none of it is designed around some sort of momentary thing. We are changed by moments, that is for sure. We're transformed in moments. But it's not the only way that we grow. It's not a one-off kind of thing. What, what's in our mind all of the time, in every different season, 52 weeks a year, is, is what I'm going to share with you today. It's the way that we think about the way we're growing as followers of Jesus. And it all begins with the why. You've got to answer the why question first. It all comes down to the why. Why do we gather each week for worship, word, and sacrament? Why do we run women's Bible study or biblical counseling or Christ City Kids or youth or, or 1018, which happens weekly and, and lots of relationships? Why do we have community groups? Why do we plant churches? Why do we do anything that we do? If we were going to sit down, you're asking me the question. I, I would tell you that. I, now, I can tell you what we do. I can tell you lots about what we do. John just told you almost everything that we do. What we do, yes, for sure. I can even tell you how we do all those things that we do. But if you don't get the why behind all of that, then it really doesn't matter at all. The big obvious reason that needs to be said, it can never be assumed. The, the thing that needs to be stated is that the why of Christ City Church is grounded in the who of God. Our why, our reason for doing the things that we do is all grounded in who he is what he has done, and what he has promised yet to do. 
The why of Christ City is nothing less than the overflow of the greatness and the grandeur of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so why are we doing all of these things as a church? Well, we, we do it because he is worthy, because he is good, because he is sufficient. We do it because Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord. We do it because he is the head of the body, the church. We do it because Jesus is the preeminent one. He is first and his glory surpasses all others. What we do, we do for God's glory, for our joy, and we do it for the good of our neighborhood and the good of our city. So if we sat down for a coffee, here's what I would say. I would say we make missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. We make missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. And I would say that to be a healthy disciple of Christ, to live your life as a follower of Jesus, there are three conversions that that should be on your mind. Three conversions that you should be thinking about as it relates to the way that you follow Jesus. Let's just go through them really quickly. This is how we're going to walk through this text today and, and the conversation that we're having. There's a conversion to Christ where we come to see him as Lord and Savior. There's a conversion to a right view of God, and I'll explain what I mean as we go through that point. And then there's a conversion to join God in his mission where you see yourself a part of what he is doing in the world. And you see that he's at work in every area of your life. You see yourself as a part of that work that he is doing. It's nothing more than a journey of discipleship. That's what I'm talking about. These are three conversions that I just think are really important for each of us to consider as we come together as a community. Now, when we talk about conversions, I don't want you to limit your understanding of that to be like a moment when you first came to believe the gospel. That, that is true. That is a moment. There is a conversion to Christ. I'm going to talk about that. But what I want you to think about is the process and the amount of time that it takes to come to Christ, to grow in your understanding of him, and figure out how he wants you to serve his mission in this world. That's a process. Over time, lived out in the context of community, we are formed through his word. God's truth forms us into the kind of people that he's calling us to be. And so the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us, as we read and understand and study the truth of how we're called to live, all of that begins to bring us on this journey of discipleship that we're talking about forms us in our understanding of who we are and who he is. And I just want you to know that takes time. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The renewal of your mind and your conversion to a right view of God, it takes a long time. So does your conversion to joining God in his mission and and seeing yourself as part of what he is doing in this world. And so you need to come to Christ. You need to have your view of God transformed through his word by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then you need to recognize that as we seek to serve him in our city, as we pray together, Jesus' kingdom come in Vancouver as it is in heaven. As we pray that, God, let your kingdom come in Vancouver as it is in heaven, we see that we are participating in the work, not just in prayer, but in the work of seeing his name known in the city that we live in. So we're going to talk about this. Let's talk about a conversion to Christ. The first thing we look at, a conversion to Christ. Look at the text, Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. For in him, and that's talking about Jesus, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. 
And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. And most of you here, I know, are followers of Jesus, but some of you aren't. Some of you are curious, some of you are guests, some of you have come along and you're not exactly sure why. Welcome. Most of you are followers of Jesus, but many of you aren't. And if you're not a Christian, I want to tell you what Jesus has done for you. The text says that you who are not yet followers of Jesus, the text says you are alienated from God. That means you are estranged from him in relationship. And that you need something to be done to bring you into right relationship with God. This alienation means that there is no peace between you and God. There's a lack of peace. That's where all of us as Christians started. Every single one of us who follow Jesus started there with alienation, estrangement, and no peace with us between God. But because of the work of Jesus, we have entered into relationship with him through the work of Jesus. We now have peace with God. Every single human being has within them this strange sense that things are not entirely the way they are supposed to be. And for most of us, before we become Christians, before we begin to follow Jesus, before we come into relationship with God, we think that there is something that we need to do to make that right. Let me give you some good news. There is nothing you can do to make yourself right with God apart from receiving the work that has already been done in your place. What is needed for you to enter into right relationship with God is not something that you can go out and achieve. It is actually something that you have to receive. It is not about what you do to gain a right standing before God. It is about what has been done for you that grants you, that by grace gives you a right standing with God. It's not about what you do. It's about what's been done. The gospel is the good news that God saves sinners through the work of Jesus Christ. You add nothing to that saving work. But the gospel does demand a response from you. It demands a response from you. Verse 20 in the text, Jesus is, uh, it, it says that Jesus was making peace by the blood of his cross. He was making peace by the blood of his cross. What does that mean? Well, nearly 2,000 years ago, Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross outside the city of Jerusalem. This was not just a historical event that happened because the, the, the Jewish leaders and the Roman governors decided that Jesus was a threat to their peace and a threat to their existence, and so they were going to put him to death. You know, he needed to die. That is true, and that is well documented by the historians, both Jewish and Roman, at that period in history. But something else took place upon that cross as well. See, God had purposed that the crucifixion and death of Jesus would accomplish something that transcends the, the, the historical event itself. There is a historical event where Jesus Christ was crucified. He was nailed to a cross outside the city of Jerusalem by the Roman governors at the, at the direction of the Jewish leaders. That happened. But God purposed it for something else, something that transcends the historical event itself that actually the reverberations of that event then continue on for all of eternity because of what happened on that day. On that cross, in his death, Jesus atoned for the sin of all people who would ever come into relationship with him. 
When he died on that cross, he took upon himself the death that you deserved and he atoned for your sin. His death was a substitutionary death. It was a death penalty for sin. And Jesus willingly took it upon himself on that cross in our place to atone for our sin, past, present, and future sin, all atoned for through the work of the perfect one, Jesus Christ. He did so that we could have peace with God now and through all of eternity. He was making peace by the blood of his cross. And when he died, he was taken from the cross and he was buried in a borrowed tomb. He wouldn't need it long, so he just borrowed one. Jesus died on that cross and he was dead and he was buried. But he didn't stay there. On the third day, he was raised from the dead and that resurrection set in motion a cataclysmic, world-altering, nation-changing, eternal reality that there is now a way to have peace with God once and for all, to receive the death that Jesus died in our place and for our sin, and to receive the new life that he offers us in his new life, in his resurrection. See, this is all the plan of God that was set in motion before the foundation of the earth that we might comprehend the depth of God's love for this whole world. John 3, verse 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of of the only Son of God. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus. The text in John chapter 3 continues on, and in verse 36 we get to a place where it says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You need to believe in the Son who grants you eternal life, but there's an obedience that comes with it. You need to obey the Son. You believe and obey, but those who do not obey the Son, it says in the text in John chapter 3, the great passage about the love of God for the whole world, it says that you shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. See, the gospel is good news that God saves sinners through Jesus Christ, through the work of Jesus Christ, but the the gospel demands a response. Will you receive the life that he offers you? which is the eternal life that can start in this moment right now, if you'll trust him? Or will you remain in unbelief and you'll remain at the stage of curiosity about what could be? Or will you cross the threshold into belief, into trust? Will you take your chances with the wrath of God upon your own shoulders and continue on in disobedience? Or will you come and yield your life before our great God and King. In the 16th century, there was a man who did a reforming work to, to, to a reforming work in the church. They call him a, a reformer. His name is Martin Luther. He said, either sin is with you lying on your shoulders or it is lying on Christ, the Lamb of God. Now, if it is lying on your back, you are lost. But if it is resting on Christ, you are free and you will be saved. Now, choose what you want. You can have peace with God once and for all, but this is the only way. You need a conversion to Christ where you come to see him as your Savior and your Lord 
And that peace with God can be yours today and for all of eternity. That's what's on offer. The first conversion we're talking about is a conversion to Christ, to come to him. The second conversion we're talking about is a a conversion to a right view of God. Part of coming to Christ and seeing him as your savior means you now understand yourself as part of the body, the church. Colossians 1.18, in our passage, it says, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Do you see that it says he is the head of the body, the church? He's the head. The church of the people, the body of Christ, and he himself is the head. When you come to Christ, you don't have to decide if you're going to be part of the church. When you come to faith in Jesus, you are part of the church. And there's churches all over the world, and there have been for thousands of years. And we all gather together in local churches like this, but we are all, as a local church, just a microcosm of the one true church that goes throughout all the ages and all the places and all the peoples and all the cities and all the towns and all the villages. People around the world worshiping just like this today. We become part of the church. In the scriptures, the, the, one of the metaphors that we talk about as the church is the, the, the body of Christ. And here's the deal. You you don't get to have the head without the rest of the body. Jesus Christ is the head of the body. And some people say that they would just like to have Jesus and not the church. Thank you very much. I understand that. I'm also part of a church. But you can't have just Jesus and not the whole body of Christ. When you become a follower of Jesus, you are grafted into the body of Christ and Christ is the head of his body. And this is a bit of a gruesome image, but you don't get to just walk around with just me and Jesus. The me and Jesus thing's not real. That's a decapitated Jesus. Nobody wants Jesus to just his head. His head's attached to his body. You get the whole thing. It's never me and Jesus. It's us and Jesus. Because when we become followers of Christ, we become part of his family. When you come to Christ, you're part of the resurrected people. Just like Jesus. We follow him in community. And that's where the next conversion begins. In the context of community. As his people, we desperately need to see God for who he really is. Look at the text in verse 15. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. See, Paul the Apostle is writing a letter to the church in Colossae, and he's writing this letter to them to refute false beliefs about Jesus. That's what his whole letter is about, especially chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. It seems that people had misconceptions about who God was and what he was like and how we were then called to live in light of that truth. And I'm sure you've never had that happen before where somebody has misconceptions about what God is like and then then, then they share their theological ideas with you. You get lots of opinions on Jesus that are completely untethered from the Bible. In the culture that we live in, there are just lots of Jesuses out there. And some of the Jesuses that are communicated are not Jesuses that we can rightly understand because they are in contradiction with the Jesus of the Bible. We need to move deeper into our understanding of who God is, and we do that by learning his word. Our day is not that much different than the day of the Colossians. When this was written a couple thousand years ago, there was confusion over the spiritual order of things 
over who created the cosmos, over who was supreme and who ruled over all creation. See, everyone has always had a view of God. We live in a city that is unbelievably spiritual. You might find Vancouver to be not very Christian, and that would be statistically true, but Vancouver is not unspiritual. Vancouver is very spiritual. It's a very spiritual city with lots of people who have lots of ideas about who God is, including the people who have ideas that there is no God, yet they are obsessed with talking about him. It's a very spiritual city. Most people will talk about God in a generic sense of the term, and another reason why we try and preach Christ so clearly, our effort is to preach Christ clearly from all over the Bible, is that it sets the message of the gospel apart from all of the other cultural God talk that happens. We believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father, that our salvation is exclusively by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There is no other way, and so we want to be explicitly clear that when we are talking about God, we are talking about the God of the Bible made known most clearly to us in the incarnation of Jesus. Now, admittedly, if we want to be kind to the people who live around us who have strange ideas about who God is and they fill in the blanks on their own, and maybe some of you are those people and you're trying to figure out who God is, it's easy for us to be very kind about this because it's difficult to get to know the invisible God. It's difficult to understand what he is like. You can't come to a right understanding of who he is on your own. So we can be kind about this. It's not an easy thing to do. And that's what makes what Paul says here in this passage very, very important for us. In chapter 1 and verse 15, it says he, again Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So think about all the people in your life, your friends, your family, your coworkers, your fellow students who are just saying like, I don't know if I could worship a God who's invisible. Just be like, I have something to tell you. He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus Christ reveals God to us. Now, Paul's writing to the church in Colossae and he's telling them, he says, I know you've had a hard time understanding who God is and people around you have all kinds of ideas about who God is, but you need to understand that Jesus is the perfect revealing and representation of God. He is the exact image of God. It is by looking at Jesus that we discover who God is. If we want to know who God is, we look at Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God because he has the same nature as God, being co-eternal with him. God the Father is invisible to us, yet is manifested and made known by God the Son. You want to know what God's like? Just look at Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, He, again Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And when we're speaking about the power of Jesus, it's getting at what this term firstborn is helping us to see. In our text, it says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And that can become a little bit confusing. When we're talking about firstborn here in this text, it's not talking about, it's not referring to time. As though Jesus was like the first thing God created. That's not what it's saying. It's referring to position. Firstborn is a position. He is preeminent. He is absolutely first in status and glory. Firstborn shows us two things about Jesus. That he preceded the whole creation 
and that he is sovereign over all of the whole creation. That he preceded the whole creation and that he is sovereign or in power over all creation. We sang the song before that he has always been. That is talking about the preeminence, the preexistence. How nothing was before him. It's hard to get our minds around, but he has always been. He's not firstborn in the sense of time. He is firstborn in the sense of status. He preceded the whole creation. He is sovereign over the whole creation. In the Old Testament and in the language of the Bible, firstborn child did not just have the priority of birth, but also the dignity and the superiority that went with it. I'm the firstborn in my family. I think we should come back to some of that. It's pretty good. (laughs) Send a note to my siblings. I wasn't just first. That's what it's talking about. There's a role here. It refers to a position. In Revelation chapter 1, when Jesus said, he said, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. When he uses the word first, it's, it's a word that means absolutely first. Like nothing ever preceded him. He is the first in every sense of that word. So firstborn means he preceded the whole creation. He always has been. And firstborn also implies sovereignty. It's all his. Firstborn implies preeminence over all of creation and sovereignty over all of creation. He is first in rank. Nothing was before him. Nothing is greater than him. He is first in status and glory and power and honor and position. And in all things, he is preeminent. Is he preeminent over this? Yes, he is. Over all things. And when it says in him all things hold together, it reveals his power, that he is the very central power in all of the universe, that he is the center of everything that has been created. He is the integrating center. He holds it all together. And and what he does for all of creation, he does for his church. And that's why such a diverse group of people from all over the globe, from every different ethnicity, and from every different socioeconomic background can be united together in him. He's that powerful. Doesn't he deserve our worship? Doesn't he deserve our praise? Isn't this the kind of God who deserves our best and our all? I just, if we had eyes that could just catch a glimpse of his glory, it would change us and it would transform us and it would renew us. And that's my prayer for you, that you catch a glimpse of his glory, see him for who he is. Jesus is the exact revelation of God. In Jesus, we have God come to us in flesh. Nothing in this world compares to knowing Jesus. When we look at him and we see him for who he is, we see the God who cannot be seen, but the God who then from that point onward can never be ignored. It's God unmasked. 
It's God made visible. He is God with us. And so if we want to see and understand God, we just need to look at Jesus, the Jesus of the Gospels, the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus who is risen and reigning in all power and all authority at the right hand of God the Father, the Jesus who is seated on the throne and who has said that he will return and he will make all things new. He's our great God and King. He is worthy of all of our honor and glory and all of our worship. See, the gospel demands a response, not just of you who do not yet know Jesus, but it demands a response from every one of you who already know Jesus. What will you do with your life? The response is is one of surrendering everything to him, trusting that he is able to lead not just you, but his church, and not just his church, but also you. You should should respond in the sense of like reordering and recentering everything in your life around Jesus. And it's September and things get busy for lots of people in September and you're looking at it going, man, if I could just have some way of knowing how I should reorder and prioritize my life, well, just put him at the center. And don't ever move him. And I'll tell you, keep walking with him, growing in your understanding with him, relationship with him, relationship with his people. And those those, those priorities that, that flow out of having him at the center all of a sudden start to coalesce. They start to make sense. And you'll learn and grow on how to walk with him. It's a theological conversion. We have a conversion to Christ where we come to see him as our Savior and our Lord, but we also then have a conversion to a right view of God, an exalted view of God. And then third, there's a conversion to join God in his mission. It's to see yourself as part of what he's doing in the world. Look at verse 21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister, a minister or a servant, He's a servant of the gospel. The gospel that Paul is proclaiming is what reconciles us to God. It's how we have peace with him. When we receive this peace with God that can only come through the finished work of Jesus, we become part of his people, the church. And in the church, when we follow Jesus together and we allow his word, the scriptures, to shape our view of God in all of our life, we grow into our deeper understanding and a right view of God where we give him all. And Paul says he's a minister or servant of that gospel. He's a servant of God and a servant of the message of the gospel in Christ's city. So are you. So are you. Many of you have come to Christ. I know that. Many of you have wonderful theological concepts that you can explain God within. And you are so smart and you know so much about God. My fear is that, the, that that's kind of where it stopped for many of us that we've been converted to Christ, we have a great theological view, but I think that there is perhaps a need for more of us to experience a conversion toward his mission, which means we participate in what he is doing in the world. That is your job, your role, your gift, however you want to phrase it, it's your joy to participate in what he is doing. Don't think so little of yourself that you think he can't use you. He's at work in this world. It's about participating in his story, not just trying to fit him into our already full life. It's about reorienting our lives around his story, not just trying to squeeze him in wherever you've got a little margin in your already fulfilling life. 
And do you see how these three conversions actually create a bit of a cyclical view of the work of the church? If we were having a coffee, I would take a napkin and I would draw a circle. And I probably should have made a slide for this. And on one spot I would see, I would say a conversion to Christ. And then I draw an arrow on the circle to the next spot that says a conversion to a right view of God. An exalted view of God, the God of the Bible. And an understanding of God is going to then lead you into an understanding of your participation in his work in the world. But when you understand your participation in his work in the world, you understand that it's your job to introduce other people who don't yet know him to him. We call it evangelism. It's sharing the good news of the gospel with people who have not yet heard. And so that is what leads to people coming and being converted to Christ. There's a conversion to Christ, a conversion to right theology, a conversion to mission. And guess what? If you get converted to his mission in the world and your participation in it, you're the one introducing new people to Jesus. And it just cycles and cycles and cycles. And it's actually a pathway of discipleship within the context of our church. This is how we come to him, we grow in him, and we participate in his work in the world. And no matter where you are at on this pathway of discipleship, I want you to know that you belong here. We want you. We care for you. We want to get to know you. We want to help you grow. We want to help you flourish in your life of faith. If you don't yet know Jesus, welcome. Consider him. Talk about him. It's probably not an accident that you're here. If you know him, but you're growing deeper in your relationship with him, wonderful. We want to help. And if it's stagnated for you, I want you to see that his goodness and love permeates every area of your life. Wherever you go and whatever you do, he's involved and he's leading you that you can serve him as a servant or a minister of the gospel in your context. And so when you're ready to take the next steps of discipleship and the next steps in your faith, we want to be alongside you on the journey, just like these who are taking some next steps today in the video about their baptisms. Uh, My life before I came to Christ was very challenging and tough. My dad almost died, so after that event, I never really had very much faith. I felt that God was very far away. Even though I accepted Christ at a young age of four, I didn't really know him then. Now, last year, at the age of 12, God rekindled my faith, and through my parents' and my grandparents' encouragement, I have been growing steadily and slowly in my faith. After I committed my life to Christ, I feel different now. I've never felt anything like it. I trust in God. I feel God's presence around me. I feel God trying to make me more like Him, and I am trying to model myself more like Christ. I want to be baptized to confess my faith in the Lord and be His example of His steadfast and unfailing love. So I grew up a Buddhist, and my family is a very devout Buddhist family. And um, I've been to many uh, temples to worship, but I didn't feel connected and feel very empty. And uh, in Buddhism, we have to like have compassion for other people first. And I didn't really have it, so I always feel like I'm not deserving to be loved. So my life before Jesus was very empty and always seeking for validation from other people's. And I didn't feel like connected to anyone despite my mom like trying very hard to provide for me and love me. I decided to study abroad in Canada 
And um, I came here expected to be very happy, but I got very depressed and very homesick. And during this time, I met a wonderful friend and I got to stay with her family. And uh, they're a Christian and they um, talked to me a lot about Jesus and God. And uh, she uh, invited me to a Bible study last year. And um, here I got to learn about Jesus for the first time. And when I uh, got to know him, everything in my life changed. After I let Jesus into my life, I, I felt very loved. I stopped complaining about my life and stopped having uh, seeking uh, validation from other people. And because Jesus uh, showed me love and compassion first, so I know how they feel like and I can pass them on to other people. I want to be baptized because I want to tell everyone that I belong to Jesus and He's my Lord and Savior forever. Christ has always been in my life. Um, I grew up in a Christian household. Looking back on it now, I feel like my life was kind of empty. Um, I feel like as if I knew Christ mostly on Sundays. I was very self-reliant. I thought that my uh, my achievements, how well I did in school, like what sports I did, um, how well I could play the violin, that's what would define me. Coming to Christ um, has been a long journey through my whole life. I've had a lot of time to get to know Him. Um, I feel as though I can see God through nature. I love the outdoors and I can see Him in creation. I also study biology, so I see Christ in like studying the complex um, systems how that He created us. I also have come to Christ through trials and tribulation. I feel as though when uh, super hard situation that I can't control, I, I can only rely on Christ, and that's brought me closer to Him throughout the years. I feel as though lately uh, coming to UBC, um, I've I've grown close to a lot of um, good friends, and I. It's helped me to, to grow closer to God. And it's through all these experiences that um, have allowed me to make a decision to fully commit my life to Christ. Life with Christ is kind of the opposite of what life before Christ was. I don't have to stress about needing to be the best at something or needing to do this sport to, to have like value. I want to be baptized to say to the world that I can't rely on my own strength. Um, to live a fulfilling life um, or to accomplish things. I need Christ in my life and it's through His, his love and His act on the cross that my sins are forgiven. I was born in a Christian household, so I always knew the Lord, but I never really got the chance to meet Him on a personal level. And I started guiding my life based on worldly wisdom a life without God as my savior. I came to Christ by attending Christ City Youth. I just connected to the sermons there and it just felt like God was speaking to me through those sermons. And I realized just how much of a mess that my life had become. And I just repented at night. After coming to Christ, I started to tear down the toxic lifestyle that I had developed and I started building a new Christian one with Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I want to be baptized because I want to follow Jesus for the rest of my life down to my final breath. Growing up as a Christian for most of my life, I had amassed a lot of head knowledge and theology about God and, and my faith. But if I were honest with myself, uh, I'm ashamed to say that for most of my Christian life, 
I have been a half-hearted Christian. God for me was more of a means to an end rather than an end in himself. He was somebody that you would just pray to uh, whenever you needed something or wanted something. I was obsessed about trying to be great on my own strength and, and, and trying to uh, achieve success by myself. The more that I started to adopt that mentality, the more that I started to lose trust in God and started to trust more and more in my own power, my own strength, my own wisdom and intellect. This eventually led me to 2019. During that year, I would say that was like the prime of my life. I was uh, dating this amazing girl that I thought I was gonna marry. Uh, I was making more money than I could ever imagine. I was fit, I was healthy. In that same year, um, all these calamities started to happen. The relationship didn't work out. Um, I, I lost my job, lost my uh, investments. Um, I had lost everything. And I realized that I had rejected God and, and elevated myself, elevated all these things that I was chasing above Him. And so in my despair, in my heartbreak, in my pain and agony, I just cried out to God. I cried out to God in my afflictions and God heard me. And, and I'm so thankful to be on this, this new journey. Uh, I, I'm not this super Christian all of a sudden. I still have struggles this year, has been tough. There's been a lot of ups and downs. I'm just so thankful that, that God has, above all else, just restored my relationship with Him. Given what God has done in my life over these last four years and, and transforming this prodigal son's heart um, to being a, a lover of God, I thought, you know, what better way than to display that inward reality than to be baptized this year. So I, I choose to be baptized for the first time as an expression of my faith and wholehearted commitment in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior over my whole life, over my whole heart, and over all that I possess. To Him be the glory and the honor, the power forever and ever. Amen.